Good morning. This morning, the title of my sermon is Jesus and His Miracles. This is just a standalone sermon, meaning I don't plan on continuing talking about this topic um, you know, for multiple weeks, just this one time. Uh, it was actually last, I think Sunday, so a week ago, I was praying, and this was sort of a topic that I felt like God impressed upon me, and so I decided I knew there was a week coming up that wasn't in a series, and I decided this is what we're going to talk about. So what I want to do is I want to begin by describing two different approaches to Jesus and his miracles. The first approach, I'm going to call it the Godspell approach. Godspell was a play, or is a play. Um, it was on Broadway in the 1970s. It's a play, it's a musical actually, and it's based on the Gospel of Matthew. Um, they did it on Broadway in the 70s, and then there was a revival of it, I think, I don't know, about 12 years ago or so. Um, they also made a movie out of it uh, starring Victor Garber. So it was kind of a big deal, Godspell was. And it's this musical about the life of Jesus based on the Gospel of Matthew. How many of you have seen it or have heard of it? Can I see? So yeah, so quite a few. Um, the interesting thing about Godspell is it's this, it is this musical that presents the life of Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew, but it's kind of selective in what it shows from the Gospel of Matthew. The Jesus in Godspell is very much um, like the philosopher Jesus. He is this... Um, he is this you know, great and wise man who gives these good teachings. Like That's kind of the focus of what, what the characters and what's dramatized in God's bell. It's the things that Jesus said. It's the stuff that he commanded. It's the parables that he told. That's really what they focus on. Almost nothing supernatural happens in God's bell. Um, I think in some versions, Jesus does some magic tricks. I don't even remember that from the one that I saw. I saw, one, I saw it in Leesburg about 15 years ago. Um, but there's nothing, there's no, he doesn't heal anybody in God's bell. There's no, he doesn't walk on water. There's no, you know, feeding the 5,000 and no resurrection. Okay. Like at the end of God's bell, Jesus dies. He stays dead. Um, he's just this wise man who had these wonderful teachings and then he died. Um, it's kind of similar to the Jefferson Bible. If you've ever heard of the Jefferson Bible, um, the Jefferson Bible is, and that's not the name of it. That's just like the popular name for it. I think it, the title of it was something like the, the, the morals and the teachings of Jesus, something like that. But it was compiled by the third president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson. And he took portions of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and sort of like, I think literally cut them out of the Bible and arranged them so that he had this document that was just the teachings of Jesus. Get rid of all that miraculous stuff and, you know, supernatural, whatever. And just these are the teachings and the morals of Jesus. And so that view of Jesus, whether you call it the Jefferson Bible view or whether you call it the Godspell view, I believe this is a view that a lot of people hold. Okay, there, I think there are a lot of people in our country in particular who, when they talk about Jesus, they don't say like, oh, I don't believe in him, or oh, he's stupid, or oh, I don't think he existed, or oh, he was wrong, or anything like that. I mean, like there are a lot of people, maybe most people in our culture, um, who when you say, what do you think about Jesus? They would say, oh, no, I, I think he was great. What a wonderful man who said wonderful things. I'm really into his teachings. I'm a, I'm, I think a lot of people would say, I'm a follower of Jesus. Like, I love him, and I love the, I, I'm a believer in his teachings. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. He said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. He said, judge not lest ye be judged. I really like that he said that. Whenever I do something <laughs> wrong, I tell people, judge not lest ye be judged. And so he's just, his teachings were wonderful. And so I'm a follower of his. Now, the miraculous stuff, you know, turning water into wine, you know, I don't believe that happened. I just think he was a wonderful man who said wonderful things. Okay, do you agree? Like there's a lot of people that hold that view. The view that is basically something like this. Jesus is great. And he existed, but his miracles did not. Okay? Now, that's one approach to Jesus and his miracles. The second approach, I'm going to call it the Jesus What a Friend approach. The reason I call it Jesus What a Friend is there was a kid song by that name. 
And uh, yeah, you know that song, right? Yes, you remember it from camp. So the, the, the Jesus, what a friend, if you remember it, it uh, in the bridge, the lyrics were stronger than Superman, faster than the Flash, bigger than the Hulk man. Correct. All right. So you guys know I didn't make this song up, okay? So Jesus, what a friend is very much the opposite of the Godspell view, okay? Godspell is like, well, Jesus is wise, but you know, we don't talk about his powers and his miracles. Whereas Jesus, what a friend, that song hardly talked about his teachings at all. It was all about his powers. Like, oh, he is faster than the flash. He's stronger than Superman, right? There's lots of emphasis in that song on Jesus' powers. That song does not say that Jesus is a superhero, but it it reminds me of people who view Jesus like that and they talk about Jesus like that. And what I would say is this. I would say neither of those views seems quite right to me. I do think Jesus as superhero, that view is closer to the truth than the Godspell view um, because the Bible certainly records Jesus as a supernatural being and not just a sage or a philosopher. Um, However, a look at the miracles of Jesus in the Bible will quickly show us he didn't use his powers the way superheroes do. So let's go ahead and look at a few of his miracles. The goal today is just kind of do an overview on what do we learn from Jesus and his miracles. And so I'd like to start with, I'm going to read to you, uh, I'm going to read four accounts. I'm going to read about four of his miracles. And since we've got four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I'll just read one from each one. So we'll read a a, a miracle from Matthew, a miracle from Mark, a miracle from Luke, a miracle from John. So let's start with Matthew chapter 8. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. I'm going to read verses 14 through 16. In Matthew's account, we read this. When Jesus went into Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. So he touched her hand, and the fever left her. Then she got up and began to serve him. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. He drove out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Okay, now we'll look at, and so in that one you see Jesus healed a specific person who we know, right? Peter's mother-in-law, but then he healed a bunch of other people that are not named. All right, let's look at Mark chapter 1. Here's a miracle from Mark. Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 40. Then a man with a serious skin disease came to him and on his knees begged him. If you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he told him. Be made clean. Immediately the disease left him, and he was healed. Now let's go to Luke chapter 8. This one's a big one. This one's a resurrection. Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone came from the synagogue leader's house saying, Your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. When Jesus heard it, he answered him, Don't be afraid. I only believe and she will be made well. After he came to the house, he let no one enter with him except Peter, John, James, and the child's father and mother. Everyone was crying and mourning for her, but he said, Stop crying, for she is not dead but asleep. They started laughing at him because they knew she was dead. So he took her by the hand and called out, Child, get up. Now look at the next verse. Her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and then he gave orders that she be given something to eat. And then look at John chapter 2. I picked this one because it's just a very well-known miracle of Jesus. John chapter 2, starting in verse 2, Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. Skipping to verse 7, same chapter, fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. 
And then he said, now draw some out and take it to the chief servant. And they did. When the chief servant tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. So that was just four miracles out of many miracles that we see in the Gospels. Okay? Out of all of the different recordings of the miracles of Jesus, I just read to you four of them. And I guess before I go any further, I suppose I should address this question. Did any of these things actually happen? I mean, Mario, do you really believe that Jesus performed miracles? I mean, Mario, don't you think the reason God's spell was written the way it was is because Jesus truly was a wonderful teacher? And then legends of miracles developed over time, way after Jesus' lifetime, and then those miracles got attached to the life of Jesus. But, but don't you think, like, in a way, the Godspell Jesus is probably closer to the historical Jesus because it's just the wonderful teachings that Jesus said, you know, with all those, like, legends removed, don't you think that's closer to the, like, what really happened in history? And my answer to that is no. In fact, I would say this. If there had been no miracles, particularly no resurrection, there would have been no God spell. Like that plague wouldn't have gotten written. Okay? If Jesus had not performed miracles and rose again, you'd have never have heard of him. You go, oh, yes, I would have. Okay, how many other wise carpenters from 2,000 years ago with nothing supernatural about them, have you heard of? If Jesus wasn't supernatural, he would be like the vast majority of wise people who have lived and died, and we don't know their names. And I'm not saying someone could not be so wise that they go down in history because of their wisdom. Okay, that could happen, that has happened. Confucius is a really good example. Confucius is considered a paragon of Chinese wisdom. So wise that he went down in history as such a wise man. I'm not saying that doesn't ever happen. I'm saying that's not what happened with Jesus. After Jesus' death, his earliest followers did not go around saying, look at how wise he was. They went around saying, he died and came back to life. That's what we saw. Like, that's what they said, and that's why you've heard of him. So let me show you this in the Bible. This idea that, well, this, these are just things that got made up way, way after the fact. I want to show you someone, an early follower of Jesus in the first century, and he said this back then. This is, I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you've if you got a Bible with you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is written by an early follower of Jesus. He's writing to other Christians, and this is what he says. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. He says, Now, brothers... I want to clarify for you the gospel I proclaimed to you. You received it and have taken your stand on it. You are also saved by it if you hold to the message I proclaimed to you, unless you believe for no purpose. So he's saying there's this thing called the gospel. I want to clarify. I want to make sure you understand the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the thing you believe. It's the thing you need to keep believing. Okay? It's the thing that saves you. What is this message? Here it is. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received. Here's the message, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and here's the miraculous part, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's another name for Peter, and then to the 12. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, 
Then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one abnormally born, he also appeared to me. Now, this is important. The me here in this passage is a guy named Paul. Paul is the me that's talking here. He's saying, he appeared to me. I saw him alive after he was dead. The person that's claiming this is Paul. Now, this is important to understand. Paul is a real historical figure. He's a real man that lived in the first century. People at this church, especially if you've been coming for a year or two, we know a lot about Paul. We talked about Paul, like nothing, been all Paul all the time radio for like two years. We've talked a lot about Paul. But if you're new and you weren't here for that series, I'm just letting you know, this guy actually lived in the first century. Everybody knows it. There, I, I, I've never heard of any sort of historian or any scholar at all, Christian or otherwise, claim that Paul didn't exist. Like, we have his writings. Like, he was in the first century, he wrote things down in the first century, and some of them survived, and we have them. So no, like, historian disputes this. His life overlapped with Jesus' life by, I don't know, 10 or 20 years, I think. So he's a real person who really lived in the first century, okay? And he wrote these things down. Everybody, Everybody agrees with that. There's no debate there. Now, what scholars do debate is which of the letters that Paul wrote, that are, which of the letters that are credited to Paul were written by Paul. There are, there are scholars that debate that and argue back and forth. In other words, there are some scholars that try to make the case that some of the letters that are credited to Paul were not actually written by him. They were written by other people in his name, okay? And so there is like debate about that. That conservative scholars tend to say the, let, the writings of Paul are the things that are credited to Paul in the Bible. And more liberal scholars tend to say some of the letters that are in the Bible were written by Paul, but some of them were not, like Ephesians and First and Second Timothy, okay? Now, I bring that up just to make this point, okay? Nobody's arguing whether he existed or not. No one's arguing whether he wrote stuff or not. They just are arguing over, did he write all the letters or not? So this one that I just read to you, First Corinthians, okay? This letter is found in the undisputed letters of Paul, okay? Meaning, even progressive scholars who deny the message of the Bible agree that Paul lived in the first century and he wrote these words at the time. And what he said was, Jesus died, he came back to life, and I saw it. I saw him alive after he was dead. Paul claimed he saw Jesus alive after death, a real historical figure, not centuries later, in the first century. That's what he said he saw. And what's interesting is he calls it the gospel. This thing that Jesus died and rose again, he calls that the gospel. If you notice back then, love your neighbor as yourself was not the gospel. Okay, blessed are the peacemakers, do unto others as you would do them, have them do unto you. That was not the gospel. Christ died for our sins and was raised. That was the gospel. That's what they were going around telling everybody. And so I think the thing that is undeniable is that Jesus' earliest followers claimed miraculous things about him. You can choose to believe they were lying. You can choose to believe they were mistaken, okay? But it is true that they said in the first century that this is what they saw. Now, I realize there may be some people that hear all that and they go, okay, um, I don't care what they said. I don't believe in miracles. Like, I just don't believe they're possible. So good job, Mario. You do, I get it. I get it. You're saying these aren't legends from way, way later. This is stuff that the people said was happening at the time. Sure, I'll grant that. That's probably, probably nut jobs that were living in the first century just like there are now. There are people back then. They said they saw this stuff and whatever. But I don't care what they said they saw. I don't care how many of them said they saw it. Like, I don't believe miracles are possible. Okay? And the question is, Mario, why do you think that miracles are even possible? Okay, here's my answer. Um, and it's a fairly simple answer. And yet, I think 
Everybody's going to agree with what I say. Next. The next thing I'm going to say, everyone's going to agree with. I mean, literally, everybody in this room. I don't care if you're atheist, Hindu, Christian. I'm pretty sure everybody's going to agree with the next thing I say. (laughs) If there is no God, miracles are not possible. If there is a God, miracles are possible. Okay, we agree? Yeah, that's true. That's just just basic. It's almost like self-evident. If there is no God, miracles are not possible. If there is no supernatural, then there is no person or, or force in order to perform the miracle. But if there is a God, miracles are possible. Certainly the one who created all things could alter that which he created. Now, I want to read to you a section from this book. I really like it. It's a book. Uh, the title of the book is Why Believe. The author's name is Neil Shenvey. Um, I just started reading it. I have not even finished yet. I'm only 80 pages in. I already have read enough, though, that I can recommend it. This is a great book. I'm going to read to you a section from page 76 where he talks about miracles. I think this is a very helpful illustration. So let me explain it to you, or let me just read it. He says, But given a Christian understanding of God's relationship to nature, it's probably not helpful to think of miracles as violations of natural law. The laws of nature are descriptions of how nature operates when it is not acted upon by an external agent not complete prohibitions on outside agents acting on nature. If that was too much for you, just keep listening. This next illustration is great. Imagine that a friend wants to demonstrate the law of gravity to me. And so he drops a bowling ball 99 times, and each time the ball takes exactly one second to reach the ground. Before the hundredth drop, I calmly announce that the ball will take 30 seconds to reach the ground. Quite likely, my friend would insist that I'm talking nonsense and that what I propose would be a violation of the law of gravity. But when he drops the ball, I immediately catch it. I wait 29 seconds and then release it so that it hits the ground 30 seconds after it was dropped. The law of gravity has not been violated. I have merely introduced an external factor into the natural progression of events. This example illustrates God's relationship to miracles because God is outside of nature God no more violates the laws of physics when he performs a miracle than I do when I interrupt the fall of a bowling ball by catching it. Do you get what he's saying there? If there is a God, of course miracles are possible. A God that's outside of this world could intervene. So we have reached approximately the halfway point of my sermon. Okay? So far, I have tried to explain why we should reject the God-spell view of Jesus and his miracles, okay? That the evidence does not lead us in that direction. So now, I'd like to move on to the Jesus-what-a-friend view, okay? Remind you, that's the song, we're stronger than Superman, faster than the Flash. And here's the question. Should we view Jesus as being like a superhero? I mean, if it's true, okay, okay, so he did miraculous things. So is Jesus like an Avenger or an X-Man, except that he happens to be real, right? And so for that, we need to take a look at how Jesus used his powers, okay? Did he use them like the Flash? Did he use them like Superman? How did Jesus use his powers? So I researched it this week, and I'll tell you this. First of all, I'll tell you what I did not do. What I did not do is I did not go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, verse by verse, and count up every single miracle that Jesus did. I first Googled to see if anybody else had done that work for me. (laughs) And it turns out people had, okay? So that was great. So I went, and there's lots of websites on Jesus' miracles, And so I found one. One of them listed 42 miracles um, of Jesus, okay? 42 that are listed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the way that it was set up is that the name of the miracle was on the, like, one side of the chart. 
So it was, you know, it would say like turning water into wine or walking on water or, you know, healing the blind man. And then it listed on the chart, um, like where that is found. Like this is the section in Matthew. This is the, you know, this is the verse in Mark where it says it. This is the verse in Luke. And obviously some of them were talked about by more than one person. And so those weren't counted as multiple miracles. Like if Jesus healed a blind man and it was talked about in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that wasn't three miracles. That was just written as one miracle talked about three times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay, so with that as the system, the list was 42. There are 42 miracles of Jesus on this list found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now of that list of 42 miracles, I, I just as I looked through, I was trying to see like what are the kinds of things Jesus did, okay? Um, and it, what, what I imagined was true. Um, of the 42 miracles that Jesus did, 32 of the 42 were healings, okay? 32 were healings. The vast majority of them were healings. And when I say healings, um, I'll just tell you how I define the word healing. As I went through and said, that's a healing, that's a healing. This is how I went by it. First of all, and basically anything that Jesus did that was restorative, okay, I counted as a healing. So if it's something that you would like, if there was a man that was blind and Jesus touched that man and he was no longer blind, I counted that as a healing. If there was someone who was possessed by a demon and being tortured by that demon and Jesus sent that demon out of that person, okay, and the person was then restored to like normal good life, I counted that as a healing. In fact, there are stories in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, some of them where it's hard to even tell the difference between the two. Like they're, they're, they're connected. Like you, it's, it's hard to say what's a healing and what's a phone going off. Um, it's hard to tell what's a, what's a healing, what's a, um, like a demon possession thing because there are times when someone would be like, uh, like oppressed by a demon and then there's a physical problem that's related to it. The person is mute or the person is you know, unable to hear or something like that. And then Jesus would cast the demon out of them and they would be able to speak and they would be able to hear. And so it's really kind of hard to separate all of those out. So I just kept them all together. So when I say there were 32 healings, I mean there were 32 physical healings. There were 30, there were, that includes all the exorcisms and spiritual restorations that happened and resurrections. I threw resurrections in there. Okay, you could say, well, I don't think a resurrection is a healing. Oh, well, that, that's fine for you to believe that, I suppose. But I would say a resurrection is a really big healing. Okay, that's just a giant one. So if you combine all the resurrections and the exorcisms and the healings together, you got 32 out of 42, 32 like restorative things that Jesus did for people, and which is about 75% for those of you that are good at math. It's actually 75% even if you're bad at math, okay? 32 <laughs> out of 42 is about 75%. However, I would say, um, and I'll get to this more later, it's probably more than 75%. I think it's, Jesus's ministry was probably made up of more than 75% restorative healing miracles. I'll explain why I bet that in a minute, but let me keep going. The other 10, 42 minus 32, the other 10 miracles were things like walking on water, turning water into wine, feeding the 5,000, calming the storm, helping the disciples with the miraculous catch of fish, okay, stuff like that. Now, the reason that I said healings are more than 75% is, first of all, on this chart that I was looking at, they, there were many times where Jesus healed, and it would be, I think, what most of us in this room, we would consider it multiple healings, but it was just one line on the chart, okay? In other words, there was a time where, I think there was a time Jesus healed 10 lepers, okay? When those lepers left and did whatever they did after they were healed, I bet you they did not run wherever they went next and said, I just experienced one-tenth of a miracle, right? No, that was 10 different miracles that these people were all healed, right? So... But, but on the chart, when it says the miracles of Jesus, the healing of the 10 lepers is just one entry on the chart, even though that's a lot more than one healing. Um, there are, uh, there, another one is, remember that passage I read to you earlier where Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, and then it says right after that, the people from the town showed up and he cast out many demons and he healed many people of their sicknesses. On these charts, that's just that it's a one miracle. It's just the healings of Capernaum, right? But that could have been dozens of people. That could have been 100 people. 
Okay, so there's way, so that's what I'm saying is, I think that it's not really 32 out of 42 because there's way more than 32 times that Jesus healed. Um, in addition to that, there are many passages in the New Testament to, that give us reason to believe that Jesus healed routinely. But they do not give us the impression that he walked on water routinely or that he turned water into wine routinely, right? That doesn't sound like that was a nightly thing. But the, but the, uh, the healing of people seems to happen over and over again. And so if I had to guess, I would suspect that Jesus' miracles were probably 90% healings, maybe even 99% healings and restoring people. Now, the portion of Jesus' miracles that were not healings, whatever percentage that is, um, many of those were helpful, positive, or uh, acts of kindness. So for instance, the calming of the storm. Disciples are freaking out. They're worried they're going to die. They're in this big storm. Jesus, with his words, commands the storm to stop. It obeys him. Okay, he calms the storm. That's obviously not a healing, and yet it was restorative, right? He's restoring peace to nature. Um, the feeding of the 5,000, turning of water into wine, like these are miracles of provision, even if no one was healed. The only three miracles that I could identify as not really restorative and not, like at first glance, not really helpful to anybody in the moment, these are the three. The transfiguration, walking on water, and the cursing of the fig tree. Okay? When I looked at those three, the transfiguration is when Jesus was on the mountain and he showed his glory to Peter, James, and John. Nobody was healed. It was just this glorious moment. Uh, walking on water is what it sounds like, right? Jesus walked on water. Nobody was healed. There was no like restoration. Just the disciples went, whoa, something's going on here. And then the cursing of the fig tree would be a time where Jesus said, like he said bad words to a fig tree. Not like cuss words, but you know what I mean? Like he spoke negatively to a fig tree and then it withered, Okay. So, and the disciples were shocked at how fast it had withered. So we look at those three, and those are three that don't seem to be restorative, although I would say even those three miracles, they were not useless. They communicated something to the people who saw them. They displayed his glory so his followers would know who he was. When he talked to a plant and it withered, like that's, that says something very significant about his words as opposed to everyone else's words. When he walked on water, the disciples realized, like, this is not a normal rabbi, right? When, when the transfiguration happened and Peter and James and John saw, John saw him in the, his glory, like, that, that indicated something to them so that they would know who he was. The only destructive miracle in Jesus' entire career is the cursing of the fig tree. That one sticks out among all the other ones. Jesus restores, he heals, he sometimes reveals his glory in these miraculous ways. But you have this one that sticks out. The only destructive miracle is the cursing of the fig tree. So let's go ahead and read that one. This will be fun. Uh, Matthew chapter 21. I'm going to read you verses 18 and 19. This is the main part of the, of the description of this miracle. Matthew 21, starting in verse 18. Early in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he was hungry. The he here is Jesus. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he went up to it and found nothing on it except leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. At once, the fig tree withered. So I'll just tell you right now, ladies and gentlemen, this miracle right here is an outlier, okay? This, is, this one is very different than every other thing that Jesus did. Okay? I'm not saying it didn't happen. I believe it happened. I'm just saying it's different than all of his other miracles. It's the one that sticks out. Um, it might be that Jesus was giving them an object lesson about how looking good on the outside while being fruitless and useless on the inside is a cursed position and it will bring judgment upon you just like it did the plant. Um, certainly the immediate context 
indicates that Jesus was showing them what faith can accomplish, that faith can accomplish even supernatural things, because that's what he says right after he does it. But for this sermon, I just want to point out, Jesus Christ had the power to curse things and wither them. Like, that doesn't get talked about very much. I have not, I've not heard this, a big deal been made of this. Jesus Christ had the power to curse things and wither them. Like, that, Jesus cursed a plant and it died, all right? He had the power to do that, and this is the thing. And he never used this power on his enemies. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus did not curse Pontius Pilate. Jesus did not wither Caiaphas, even though, even, even as he was being spit upon and beaten in Caiaphas' courtroom. Jesus did not curse and wither the people who crucified him, but rather he prayed for their forgiveness at the time it was happening. You may say, oh, Mario, do you really believe Jesus could like wither and curse people? I do, okay? He did it to a tree. I don't have any reason to think that he couldn't do it to a person. And in fact, in Matthew chapter 26, he claimed that he was capable of a lot more damage than that. Look at Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, starting in verse 52. Then Jesus told him, put your sword back in its place. Let me pause, give you some context. This is right as Jesus is being arrested, okay? The bad guys are coming to arrest Jesus. He's there with his disciples. His disciples' immediate reaction, at least Peter, was to defend him. Peter pulls out a sword, cuts a guy's ear off. That's the context here. So Jesus told him, the him is Peter, okay? Jesus told him, put your sword back in its place because all who take up a sword will perish by the sword. Now look at the next verse. Or do you think that I cannot call on my father and he will provide me at once with more than 12 legions of angels? I don't know if you know much about legions, but from what I've looked up, that's an army of about 70,000. 70,000 troops. I think Jesus was claiming here, hey, I could wipe out all of my enemies if I wanted to. But that's not what I'm doing today. What is remarkable about Jesus is that he did not use his powers in selfish ways, even though he was tempted to do that. Did you know he was tempted to do that? Look at Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It says this, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, that's an understatement, right? <laughs> he was probably very hungry. Now, look what happens next. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. But he answered, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. What an interesting story. Some of you maybe read the story and said, yeah, what is going on there? It looks to me like the tempter, right, the devil, is tempting Jesus to turn stones into bread, right? He's saying, tell these stones, to, and if, if you're the son of God, right? So if you're the son of God, you have the ability to do this, right? Tell these stones to become bread. You would, it's just a weird temptation. It's shocking that this is the first temptation of Jesus. Wouldn't you think that the devil would have been like, hey, let's look at that lady over there? Or he'd be like, let's go rob this bank. Come, we're gonna get a bunch of money, right? No, it's, Turn these stones into bread. Tell these stones to become bread. Now, I'm assuming it must have been possible for him to do it, right? I don't see any reason why the devil would tempt Jesus to do something he was not capable of doing, right? That's a waste of a temptation. And, and Jesus doesn't say anything back that it seems to indicate like, well, that's silly. If I told those stones to become bread, nothing would happen, right? That's not what he does. 
He sure seems to seem, think he could do it. But why is this a temptation? It's turning stones into bread, why? I mean, is that a sin? Is there anybody in this room that's aware of any passage in the Old Testament that forbids the turning of stone into bread, right? Is that against God's law anywhere? Well, then why? I mean, is it wrong to turn something into another thing? No, Jesus turned water into wine. That must be okay. Well, is it wrong to like make bread supernaturally? Nope, Jesus did that when he fed the 5,000. Well, then what's the problem with turning stones into bread? And I think the answer is, this was a temptation for him to use his power selfishly. That the devil was saying to him, yeah, if you're the son of God, you could, you've got power. So do this. Don't, don't, don't trust God to provide for you like all the other humans have to do. Do this. And so these are some of the reasons why I'm saying Jesus is not like a superhero or a comic book character. And I don't mean that to bash the song, Jesus, What a Friend. You can keep on listening to it, okay? In fact, the song actually says Jesus is better than any superhero, which I agree with, okay? Jesus is different than the heroes that we make up in comic books and video games and literature. Jesus used power differently than we do, differently than the way we do as humans when we make up fictional stories about powerful people and even different than the way as we live our lives. Jesus used power differently than we do. I mean, think about it. If you could have a superpower, what would it be? And how would you use it? I've asked this question, so I think, several times in my life, um, probably more than most of you. I guess there's not a lot of you going around asking people, so if you could be a superhero, what would you be? But of course, you have a pastor that is dumb. Um, I think back when I was a youth pastor, I did it, and certainly over the past 13 years, I've done it. I've read, I read it in a book somewhere, like a book of like, you know, crowd breakers or icebreakers. And so whenever we've done like community groups and there's new people, sometimes that'll be one of the questions that's asked is, hey, if you could have any superpower, what would it be? So I've heard people answer this a lot. If you could have a superhero power, what would you do with it? Okay. And I would say, I think the number one answer I've heard the most times is, oh, I wish I could fly. Oh, it would be so cool. If I could, if I could have a superpower, I would love to fly. How cool would it be to just fly over and be able to see everything? Man, that would be so cool. All right. That's, I think, what most people say. There are other answers. Some people say, some people say, I wish I could teleport. Some people say, I wish I could be invisible. Some people say, I wish I had super strength. But what's interesting is, if any of us had supernatural powers, we'd use them selfishly, wouldn't we? Every time I've asked that question, it's like, oh, I would fly. Wouldn't that be cool? I mean, I I literally have never heard anyone answer that question with, I'd heal people. Not one time, all the times I've asked, and I've never, hey, if you could have any superpower, what would it be? I've never heard anyone, he, I would go around healing people. Even though healing is a superpower, right? It's not like, well, many people didn't think of that, because that's, how would we have thought of that? It's in comic books, it's in role-playing games, it's in video games. We're aware that's the thing. Nobody picks it, okay? Nobody picks it. In fact, even when it exists in a video game or in a comic book or in a movie or whatever, the, the people who have this power of healing, they are never the stars of the show. They are never the stars of the video game. They are always the support characters. The stars are always the people that can shoot lasers out of their eyes and stuff like that. Okay, if this comic book stuff is too much for you, let me try the example from another angle. This one is, this is from a hit song back in 2003, Okay. This was a pretty big song. It was, it was in uh, the top 40. The name of the song was Invisible. And um, I think it was recorded by another group of people when it was like, released in Europe. But in America, the person that recorded the song and released it in our country, his name was Clay Aiken. Okay? Clay Aiken of American Idol fame. I think it was his second single. Okay? 
And when and it was like this song charted, it was played on the radio all the time, I can remember it, okay? And so I just want to read to you the lyrics of this song, okay? This is the, the first couple of sentences of the chorus. If I was invisible, then I could just watch you in your room. Remember it? Anybody remember this song? You remember it? If I was invisible. Do you remember? You remember it, right? Okay. If I was invisible, so listen to, the, listen to these lyrics. If I was invisible, I could just watch you in your room. If I was invincible, I'd make you mine tonight. Creepy, huh? Okay. People have called that song a stalker's anthem. Okay. But it was a top 40 song. It was a popular song. And here's what I think the song does, stalker anthem or not. I think what it does is it says the quiet part out loud. A lot of us, if we were honest, and that's not going to happen because a lot of us are not honest. Okay. And so we're not going to say this. But a lot of us, if we were honest, would have to admit that if we had supernatural powers, we would use them for selfish purposes, just like in the song. We would use them maybe to force other people to do things against their will, if we could. In fact, you don't even need superpowers to know that's true. History is filled with people who gained power, military power or political power, and then they used it in selfish ways and forced things onto people. I mean, that's the story of history. That's what humans do, except for one human. Jesus used his powers restoratively and not selfishly. And this idea dawned on me about a week ago. I, th I thought this through and went, whoa, and then I went, I was out, I was walking the neighborhood at the time. I went back to the house and I said something like this to my wife. I said, Jesus's miracles are a testimony to his divinity, not just because of their existence, but also because of the kind of miracles he did. In that sense, he is not one of us. And I don't say any of this to imply that Jesus doesn't have the right to, to defeat his enemies. He does. He does, and one day he will. But in his first coming, he did not come as an avenger. He came to provide salvation. But when he returns, he will judge all who have not followed him. He will judge them with his power. And he will, with his power, restore all things to be as they ought to be. That is Jesus Christ, our great miracle worker. Let's pray. God, I ask... Heavenly Father, please let the words that are merely of me be quickly forgotten. But that which is of you, I pray that it would be remembered and understood and applied. I have prayed this multiple times this morning and I just will say it out loud one more time. I pray that there would be a miracle this morning. Not a miracle in the preaching of your word, but a miracle in the hearing of it and in the understanding of it and in the applying of it. I ask that you would work among your people this morning. We love you. We thank you, Jesus, that you are not like one of us. You are incredible and we love you and we worship you. 
And we look forward to the day that you do what you have next planned. And we, we think about it with fear and trembling that you will judge people. And, but we, at least those of us who know you, we don't look at it with like an unhealthy fear. We know that you've saved us. But we realize how huge you are and we look forward to the day when you will restore all things. And we thank you for that in advance. Amen.